Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 401. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. So we passed the 400 show and we're marching on there. Engines at full warp. And like I said, big thank you to everyone that emailed in and kind of on Facebook and Twitter and everything like that, just saying, you know, congratulations. Just superb. You know what I mean? It was... And the main thing is, though, you know what I mean? I'm kind of not kind of blowing this into the wind or anything. There's so many people kind of helping have helped in the past, you know what I mean? And it wouldn't be still going if it wasn't for them, you know, and listeners, you know, if everyone out there just kind of listening, just going to work there now, sitting, sitting on a train or on a bus, in the car, listening to it, in a truck, driving along some forgotten highway, you know what I mean? Wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for you lot. So a big thank you. And a big thank you to Octagon Technology as well, putting in the little competition books there. Big thank you to them. And it's just been like I say, you know, it's, it's coming up in, I think it's June next year. Ten years, man. Ten years sitting down to do this show, you know, every week. And I just love it. Do you know what I mean? Just love it. It Getting Starship, you know, getting not Starship, but get science fiction, you know, works out there and just listening to some of the works. Do you know what I mean? Just... On that note as well, just a quick little, because I'm going to try and get back into the videos. Since I've, I did the walk and everything like that, I haven't been doing the videos, just way too much. But Emily St. John Mandel, she did Station Eleven. Now, I think it was the Arthur C. Clarke award-winning book. What a book, man. Oh, Station, oh, do you know what I mean? Station Eleven. Yes, it's set, you know, there's this kind of big ec- epidemic hits the world and some sort of like flu influenza thing just kind of wipes out everyone. And you think that's it. Do you know what I mean? And, I, and, I, and it's like this kind of post-apocalyptic almost, you know, and there's like kind of in this, in this future and, you know, what's going to happen. But it just skips and dances all over the place. What a book. Oh, fantastic. Get yourselves a copy of that. I listened to it with audio and the audio was just lovely, just perfect. Actually, if you buy it on Kindle, then it, you know, there's quite a few of these deals where you can get the audio for next to note. Do you know what I mean? You buy the kind of Kindle version, which is next to note anyways, then you can get, you know, if you had to go straight to Audible and get it, it it's a fair old price, you know, if you're not a member. So there you go. Top tip. So today's show, it is Don Quixote by Carrie Vaughan. I'll give you a little heads up about Carrie Vaughan. Oh, that's mine. My new phone. <laughs> it's got that many... Noises coming out of it, man. It's starting to get drivers mad. The other one was all set. Sorry about this, Carrie. I'm just, I had all different, you know, I knew all my things, but this is just sending out all different. So I don't know if that's, I'm 
batting a ball with that thing at the moment. I don't even know how to turn the sound off. So anyways, Carrie Vaughan's with her Don Quixote, which was a... Oh, man. Right, give us a second. I'm going to try and knock this off. Right, there we go. Ever, ever the professional. <laughs> We've lasted nearly 10 years. Miracle. <laughs> anyway, Carrie... I've got Carrie Vaughan's story, like I say, Don Quixote, which was originally published in John Joseph Adams' Armad. Carrie Vaughan is the author of the New York Times bestselling series of novels about a werewolf named Kitty. The most recent instalment of which is Kitty Saves the World. She has written several other contemporary fantasy and young adult novels, as well as upwards of 70 stories. She's also the contributor to the Wild Card series of Shared World Superhero, edited by George R. Martin. And she's a graduate of the Odyssey Fantasy Writers Workshop. An Air Force brat, she survived a nomadic childhood and managed to put down roots in Boulder, Colorado. And there's a link on the carryvaughan.com. Now, this story is narrated by Nicola Seton Clark. Nicola! Just the voice, man! Just the voice! And I spotted it straight away, you know what I mean? Nicola, as you know... I hope you know, is the host of Farfetch Fables as well. Just a beautiful voice. Nicola lives in the wilds almost of Eastern Europe with a long-suffering husband and children and a grumpy cat. Trained as an actress and a singer, she's worked in the entertainment for over 20 years, currently splits her time between writing speculative fiction, helping her husband run a voiceover company off-stimmer and voicing everything from commercials and documentaries to public transport announcements with the most beautiful voice. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Don Quixote by Carrie Vaughan The distant thunder and subtle earthquake of a bombardment shouldn't have bothered me. I'd stayed in Madrid through the siege three years starting in 36, and a man didn't forget a thing like that. My gut didn't turn over at the noise, but at its implications. The war was supposed to be all but over now, so why the bombing? Joe and I had left the main army to drive a truck along the river, looking for a vantage where we could watch the defenders' last stand. Most of the other reporters had already fled the country. I imagined I'd follow soon enough, as soon as I got that one great story. There had to be some kind of nobility in the face of defeat, some kind of lesson for the future. We stopped at a ridge and looked out over the river valley, trying to guess Franco's army's next move, without getting too close, of course. I shaded my eyes. Another rumble of thunder rolled over us and columns of smoke rose up from around the next hill. Joe squinted into the sky. Where are those bombs coming from? I don't see any planes. It's not planes. Then what is it, artillery? It didn't feel like artillery. The ground wasn't thumping with every report. Want to find out? You drive, I'll get my camera. We left the overlook and drove until we found a turn-off leading toward all that smoke. I gripped the steering wheel. The truck lurched over potholes, the shocks squealing. Joe held the dash with one hand and his camera with the other, waiting for his shot. Not that there was anything to see. The landscape was barren of trees and vegetation, not a spot of green. The battle had passed by here already, some time ago. When we circled the next hill and came into an open stretch, the world changed. The battle here had been recent. Battle? More like a rout. Evidence suggested a massive aerial bombardment, 
tanks broken into pieces, treads shattered and turrets ripped from chassis, craters dotting the field like paint spatters, platoons reduced to scattered body parts. Vegetation still smouldered and smoke rose up from wrecked ground. If I didn't know better, I'd have said this was someplace on the Western Front twenty years ago. It's what happened when you took a thousand pounds of explosives and used them to scrape the land clean. We had expected to find the crumpled remains of a defeated army. The fascists had pushed the Republican defenders back to the edges of their territory. The war was just about over, with Franco the victor. Everyone said so. Without outside aid, the Republicans didn't have a chance. But any potential allies had just turned their backs by making peace with Hitler. So-called peace, however long it lasted. Somehow I couldn't turn away from the disaster. Something's not right, I said finally. You just now noticed? No. Look at those rifles, the markings. These guys are nationalists. Franco's army. Wait, aren't they supposed to be winning? Yeah. Joe got excited. Then it's true. The loyalists have come up with some secret weapon. They're going to turn it around after all. I thought it really was too late. You had to have territory before you could defend it, and the loyalists didn't have much of that at all at this point. But if they did have a secret weapon, why wait until now to use it? Something doesn't add up. Crows circled. The air was starting to stink. There wasn't even anybody left to retrieve bodies, as if Franco's army hadn't yet figured out it had suffered such a defeat. Hank, let's get out of here. Wait a minute. I grabbed binoculars from my bag on the seat next to me and peered out. The road we were on hugged the hill and looped away from the plain where the battle had taken place. On the far side, beyond the destruction, another road stretched away, fresh, cut into the hard earth an unpaved, destructive swathe, trammeling vegetation to pulp. It was as wide as two tanks driving abreast. Of course, we had to follow it. We took the truck as far as we could across the battlefield, which wasn't far at all. Weaving around debris, we avoided most obstacles, but got stalled in a deep-cut rut. Ten minutes of spinning our tyres in mud didn't get us anywhere. After an argument, we decided to continue on to follow the story. What I figured, the weapon was mobile. The rectangular sections of treads had dug into the ground, leaving an obvious path to follow. It was big, heavy. And it had to be pretty fast, because even through the binoculars, I couldn't find a sign of it ahead. It must be a tank. Joe said. Too big, I answered. Too wide. I'd been a cub reporter in the Great War and had seen up close what tanks could do, which was quite a lot, but not this much. Unless, as Joe said, some genius had made improvements. I don't know of any tank that carries enough shells to level a battalion like that. A couple of tanks, maybe? A whole squad of them? But there was only one path leading out, one pair of treads travelling onward a helpful dotted line guiding the way. The sun started towards the west. We had canteens of water, some bread and sardines stuffed in our packs, but no blankets, nothing for camping out, not even a flashlight. I thought about suggesting we turn around and then decided to wait until Joe suggested it first. You hear that? Joe said in our second hour of slogging. I stopped and heard it. The metallic grinding of gears, the bass chortle of a diesel engine. If I'd been back in the States, close to a town, I'd have assumed I was near a construction site, jackhammers and cranes working at full capacity. We had just a little further to scramble, over another tread-rutted rise, before we saw what it was.
A small camp had been set up, a fire over which a pot hung from a tripod containing boiling water. A canvas lean-to was propped on a set of rickety branches that must have been picked up from the side of the road. A bearded Spaniard in worn army fatigue sat by the fire, stirring whatever was in the pot. In the shadows outside the reach of the fire, another Spaniard worked at what looked like an armour-encased engine block mounted on a scaffold. The engine glowed, spat sparks and spewed a shroud of smoke into the air. Atop the engine block was a steel chassis. Below it were the treads that had cut the road from the battlefield. It was a tank, but not really. Rather, some Frankenstein's monster of tank parts. The war machine had been cobbled together and greatly expanded, drawing on the initial tank design for inspiration and then taking it to an extreme. Wide treads on a hinged base performed the same motion as an ankle joint, bending as it climbed over obstacles, keeping the chassis level. The cannon stood in for arms, firing six-inch shells, if I had my guess. A squadron's worth of bombing in a single go. Armoured, mobile, crushing everything in its path, as if ten thousand years of warfare had led to this. The glowing engine seemed like nothing so much as a beating heart, pounding in anger atop a muscled body and stout legs. The red, yellow and purple stripes of the Republican flag were painted on its side. Joe and I just stared, until the first Spaniard drew a pistol from a pouch on his belt and shouted at us in Spanish. Joe put his arms up and yelled back, Somos Americanos! Americanos! For a frozen moment I thought that wouldn't matter and we'd both get shot. I prepared to run. But the Spaniard lowered his pistol and laughed. I don't believe it, he said in accented English. We thought you all left. He invited us to sit by the fire. The mechanic climbed off the machine and joined us. The man at the fire was Pedro, the mechanic, Enrique. Pedro was a nondescript soldier in worn fatigues, hat pressed over shaggy hair. Enrique was otherworldly. His eyes were invisible behind tinted goggles. His head was bare. His hair appeared to have been singed off by the heart of the engine where he worked. After exchanging names, we told our stories. But Joe and I couldn't stop looking at the modified tank. Pedro saw this and smiled. What do you think? It's... I started, then shook my head. I don't know what to think. We call it the Don Quixote. Because you're tilting at windmills? Pedro laughed and said to Enrique, I told you, people would understand. Enrique didn't say a word. He sat on the ground, arms around his knees. The firelight reflected off his goggles, so he could have been looking anywhere. But... What is it? Joe asked. It's a personal tank, Pedro said. Enrique built it, but it was my idea. It's better than a tank. Faster, more agile, simpler to operate. It only needs one man instead of a whole crew. You've seen what one person is able to do with a machine like this? The battalion back there? You destroyed it? I said. It's amazing. Yes, it is, Pedro said. If you'd had this a year ago, you might have made a difference, Joe said. Pedro's smile fell, and he and his partner both looked at us, cold and searching. Never too late, Pedro said, shoving another stick into the fire. It took us years to build this one, but now that it's finished, we can build more, many more, an army of them. The Great War didn't end war, but this might. No one would dare stand against an army of Don Quixotes. This gave me the image of a hundred wizened old men sitting astride broken horses making a stand against Franco. 
I almost laughed. But then I glanced at the shadow of the war machine. This conversation should have taken place in a bar over a third pitcher of beer. Then I would have been able to laugh. But here, in the dark and cold, an hour's walk from a scene of slaughter, the firelight turning the faces into shadowed skulls, I thought I was looking at a new kind of warfare and was terrified. The Spaniards let Joe and I stay at their camp. They didn't have extra blankets, but the fire was warm and they shared the thin stew they'd cooked. Enrique slept in the machine by the engine, which, although it was shut down now, never stopped its subtle, clicking, cooling noises, like the beat of a heart. This is going to make a hell of a story, Joe said, whispering at me in the dark. I can't wait to get pictures in the morning. A hell of a story, yep. This isn't going to turn the war around for them, you know, I said. Of course not, with just the two of them, even if they do have that monster. And I think they're a little crazy to boot, but that's not the point, is it? This thing, folks back home will go gonzo for it. It'll be like King Kong. If we could get them to bring it to the States, we could sell tickets. There was an idea, if the two men would ever agree to it. More likely, they'd prefer to stay and smash as much of Franco as they could before going down in flames. They wouldn't have a chance to build their army of personal tanks. What do you think, Hank? Can we talk him into giving up the fight and bringing that thing to New York? Get it to climb the Empire State Building? The fire was embers. Enrique's machine clicked like crickets and Pedro seemed to be asleep. I shook my head. I'm thinking about what the Germans would do with that thing. Scratch that. With a hundred of them. Pedro and Enrique couldn't build an army of them, but an industrialized war machine like Germany? What? That armor might be able to stomp out a few battalions, but it can't win the war. They've got no allies, no outside support, while Franco's got Germany and Italy supplying him. As soon as the fascists cross the river, they've got Spain. And if they capture those two, they've got that thing, too. And then the Germans get hold of it. What are the Germans going to do with it? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? I said. Dawn came slowly, filtered through the haze of smoke and a sense of dread, like the sky was a predator waiting to pounce. In daylight, the tank looked even more anthropomorphic. The engine heart burned, the cannons could be raised and lowered like arms. The articulated treads had bolts above them that looked very much like knees. A single slotted viewport in the chassis stared like a cyclopean eye. The machine even carried a bandolier of spare shells across its chest just to drive the point home. Pedro was stoking the fire back to life when an unmistakable mechanical rumble shook in the distance. The sound of an army on the move. Enrique entered the personal tank through a hatch in the back of the chassis. The engine coughed back to life. Joe knelt on the rise sheltering the camp and stared through the binoculars. It's one of Franco's patrols coming this way following the path of destruction from the crushed battalion, looking for the enemy that had done such a thing. Pedro laughed, as he seemed to in reaction to everything. Now you can see firsthand what Don Quixote can do. I had a thought. Let me come along, let me ride with that thing. Pedro looked taken aback. Even Enrique poked his head out of the hatch to look, though his expression was blank. There's barely enough room for Enrique. You can't do anything there, Pedro said. I talked fast. I can write about it. Get you publicity back home in American newspapers. Imagine if some big investor decided to make you an offer. You'd be famous. Inventors of the most amazing war machine in history. Famous. And rich. 
but only if I'm able to write about it, really write about it, first-hand testimony. Pedro and Enrique regarded each other, and whatever secret signal passed between them, I didn't catch it. You can write with Enrique, Pedro said finally, but only if you write about it. Get us those investors, yes? The money? So much for the socialist ideals of the loyalists. I shrugged on my jacket, checking for my pencil and notebook. Joe came over and grabbed my sleeve. You know what you're doing? Sure I do. Just remember to tell everyone how brave I was if I don't make it back. Brave? Is that what you're calling it? I grinned. We can call it anything we want. We're the ones writing about it. I knew exactly what I was doing. I climbed up the back of the machine where Enrique held out his hand to assist me through the hatch in the chassis. Don Quixote had enough room for two, barely. Enrique settled onto a board that had been bolted in front of a control panel. There wasn't a seat for me, so I perched behind the driver in a narrow indentation left by the hatch. My knees were jammed up to my chest and I had to reach up to hold onto a bar welded above my head. The air inside was thick, close and full of the stink of burned oil. The thing didn't seem to have any ventilation. The armour was sealed up tight. The slit above the controls offered the driver the narrowest of views. I couldn't see a thing. Only the metal interior scarred with hammer blows and smeared with soot. Sweat broke out all over me and I had trouble catching my breath. Enrique didn't seem to notice the burning air. He pulled on several of a dozen levers and turned a handful of toggles. The vibrations rattling through the machine changed, growing more severe. The engine throbbed beneath my feet, a burning furnace ready to explode. And then the machine began to move. The chassis lurched straight up, like an elevator jerking hard to the next floor. Gears and drive belts squealed, treads rumbled, and the tank rolled forward. The motion was rough, jarring, like driving too fast over gravel, swaying this way and that as we passed over some rut or chunk of vegetation. Incredibly, we were moving. My teeth rattled in my jaw. Enrique sat calmly, his hands steady on the controls, moving levers in what seemed to be a random sequence. He was driver, gunner, mechanic, engineer, and commander all in one. Any normal tank would have needed six men to do all those jobs. He turned another set of toggles, and a new set of gears engaged. The chassis tipped back as if the machine was now looking skyward. I opened the hatcher crack to steal a look. The side-mounted gun turrets had ratcheted into place, aiming towards the approaching enemy. I shut the hatch again. By lifting myself up, I could see around Enrique's head and catch a glimpse of the outside through the slit in the metal. The view was like flashing on individual frames of film without seeing the whole picture. A tank motoring towards us, artillery guns lined up, trucks circling, troops moving into position, and among them all, the red and gold of the fascist flag. Enrique jumped up, throwing me against the back wall of the chassis. The driver pulled on a lever jutting above him, and an explosion burst, enveloping Don Quixote in a storm of thunder, the cannons firing. He pulled on a second lever, and a second shell launched. I ducked to try and glimpse what was happening through the slit, but I saw only smoke. I heard distant detonations and screams. The Spaniard kept pulling on the overhead levers, and shells kept firing. He must have had an automatic mechanism loading ammunition. And if the Germans got a hold of that bit of technology... I tore a piece of paper out of my notebook, wadded up two small bits and shoved them in my ears. That only cut out the sound a little. I could still feel every vibration in my bones. I was growing dizzy from it. The cannon acted like gatling guns, firing six-inch explosive shells over and over. Enrique's tank churned along the edge of the battlefield, swivelling the chassis to move the gun, raking the enemy with cannon fire. 
this second battalion didn't last long. An occasional bullet pinged off Don Quixote's armoured chassis but did no damage. The vulnerable bits of the mechanism were too well protected. Enemy artillery launched a few shells before Don Quixote's cannon destroyed them, but the explosives detonated dozens of feet away. The personal tank's small size and mobility made it difficult to target. This thing just kept getting more dangerous. Then it was over. The tank stopped rolling and settled on its treads. Enrique powered down the engine, which softened to a low growl. I opened the back hatch and tumbled out into the fresh air. Relatively fresh. The stink of gunpowder and blood rose around me. But at least there was a breeze. My ears kept rattling, seemed as if they would rattle for ages. Pedro and Joe ran towards us. They must have seen the whole thing. They'd have had a better view than I'd had. Joe had probably gotten some splendid photos. Ha! You did it again, Enrique! Bueno! Pedro called. Enrique was climbing down from the chassis more gracefully. And you, Hank, did you get a good story? I hadn't written a word, but I had a good story. Guys, both of you, get over here. Let me get a picture of you in front of the battlefield, Joe said, gesturing the Spaniards together and pointing his camera. I leaned against the tank, Don Quixote. I had a story, but I didn't know how to tell it, or even if I could. Instead, I made a plan. Finding footholds on leg joints, gripping bolts, gears, and the window slot in the front of the chassis, I climbed to the front of the tank. Balancing there, I reached to the bandolier of artillery shells and pulled out two left over from the battle, tucking them in the pockets of my jacket. By following exhaust pipes, I found my way to the engine and the fuel tank hidden behind armour plating under the chassis. A simple sliding door gave access to it for refueling. Enrique obviously wasn't expecting sabotage. I jammed one of the shells between a set of pistons operating the tank's legs and dropped the second in the fuel tank. I twisted up a handkerchief into a makeshift fuse and lodged it in the fuel tank door, and then I lit a match. Wouldn't give me much time, but I didn't need much. I tried not to look too nervous to draw suspicions when I marched over to Joe and grabbed his arm. We have to get out of here. Joe had been directing Pedro and Enrique toward a photograph against the backdrop of destruction and dozens of shattered bodies. The two men were grinning like hunters who'd bagged an eight-point buck. The photographer looked at me, confused. We really have to get out of here, I said. Hey, Pedro said. You're going to write about Don Quixote, yes? You write about us? Tell everyone? We can win the war. They'll see we're finally winning and send help. That's right, I said, patting my notebook in my jacket pocket, even as I dragged Joe away back up the rise. I've got it all down. You don't need to worry. In fact, we need to get back and phone this story to our editor right now. Can't waste any time. Pedro seemed to accept this explanation and waved us on our way, calling out blessings in Spanish. Enrique just watched us go, through glassy, goggled eyes. He'd never taken them off. Hang, what the hell are you doing? Just keep walking. The explosion came as we passed into the next bowl of a valley. Good timing there, we missed the brunt of the shockwave, but the force of it still knocked us both to the ground. Christ, what was that? Joe scrambled to look behind us. A dome of black smoke was rising into the air. Maybe the two Spaniards had had a chance to get away. Maybe they'd been knocked clear by the initial blast, but probably not. We watched as the cloud expanded and dissipated. Maybe that thing wasn't as well-built as they thought, I observed. Joe looked at me. Then we were lucky to get out of there, he said, deadpan. Yes, we were, I imagine. We kept walking. A winter breeze was blowing and my jacket didn't seem able to hold off the chill. 
I wasn't sure we were walking toward the truck, for all I knew that second battalion had confiscated or smashed it. It didn't matter. We just needed to dodge Franco's troops, get across the river, then get out of Spain. I listened for the sound of tank treads, truck motors of a thousand marching bodies. The world was silent. Wind rustling through dried brush, that was all. I think they could have done it, Joe said after half an hour of walking. The Ebro River had appeared, a shining strip of water in the distance. I think they could have beaten back Franco with that machine if they'd had enough time. Then what? They build more? Or sell the design to a real manufacturer? And then what? You really want to see those things stomping all over Europe in the next war? What next war? There isn't going to be a next war. Not after the Munich Treaty. I stared at him. Everyone kept telling themselves that, as if this whole debacle in Spain wasn't the opening salvo. Let me see your camera a minute. Joe, bless him, handed it right over. I popped the cover and yanked out the yard of film he'd shot, exposing the film and destroying the pictures. Hey! Joe said. But that was all. I closed the cover and handed the camera back. Somehow, deep down, the photographer must have understood. That was why we were all here, wasn't it? Doing our part to make the world a better place? There you go. Don't forget, copyright is. Carrie, Carrie, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on Starship Sova. A real pleasure and a treat. And Nicola, what can I say, man? What can I say? Oh, fantastic. So we've just got the one story today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Little shout out as well. We are in the preparation, along with my good self and a young gentleman called Craig, Craig Napier. We are getting this newsletter. We're going to revamp the newsletter and get it coming out every two weeks. Now, if you go to any of the websites, there's a little sign up one page there. You can get the Starship Sofa's Volume 1 in ebook format. And that's just got all the kind of big guns in there when we first me and D kind of kicked that off. So you can get that book. And I've also got up at the minute, you can get the, the time travel, the, the video that Amy done, and you know, not just Amy, we had Connie Willis on there and Ted Chang talking about time travel. And Amy actually gives you, I think, possibly about 10 just different options to different books to choose from. So that is a great video. So you can get them if you just, even if you just kind of sign up. And like I say, Craig and myself are going to kind of get this newsletter together, going to, you know, kind of revamp it and get it coming out every, probably every couple of weeks. And we're going to kind of, you know, tell what's going on in the kind of, it's a more, more of a, like a District of Wonders newsletter. We're going to see what's going on in the other shows. You know, I'll have a little introduction there. There'll be things just talking about, actually, like, see, we've been going 10 years. Craig had this idea of just going back because he's, which is nice, is, again, it's like this time travel He's nowhere near, nowhere near kind of what we're talking about now. He's way back. He's way back in time listening. And what, I don't know, did I, had I just fell us? Or, you know, there's, it's, he's way back. Trust us, I don't think we've kind of won the Hugo or anything. He's, he's, he's miles away. And it's, it's nice because he's kind of living that now, living this moment now, you know what I mean? And what we're going to do is kind of incorporate a little bit of that as well. And, you know, store, you know, like books to look out for, authors to look out for. Like I mentioned, we're talking about Emily St. Mandich and John Mandel. What a book that is. So come over to sign up. Like I say, we're going to try and make it a little bit special and get it regular as well. That would be fantastic if you did that. 
all different little avenues to have science fiction in your lives, in your commute, in your kind of, you know, in your sphere. We are there to please. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.